Emergency. Emergency. Terrorism, law, and democracy. Terrorism and the rule of law. The international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th, 2001. You'll notice that the, the name of this operation, remember at first it was going to be a crusade, but they backed off that because PR agents told them that wouldn't work. And then it was going to be infinite justice, but the PR agents said, wait a minute, you're sounding like your divinity, so that wouldn't work. And then it was changed to enduring freedom. Uh, we know what that means, but nobody has yet pointed out, fortunately, that there's an ambiguity there. To endure means to suffer. <laughs> and uh, there are plenty of other people around the world <laughs> who have endured what we call freedom. <laughs> Again, fortunately, we have a very well-behaved, educated class, so nobody has yet pointed out this ambiguity. Freedom is at risk. And America and our allies must not and will not allow it. But some governments will be timid in the face of terror. And make no mistake about it, if they do not act, America will. Our war against terror is only beginning. Most of the 19 men who hijacked planes on September the 11th were trained in Afghanistan's camps. And so were tens of thousands of others. Thousands of dangerous killers, schooled in the methods of murder, often supported by outlaw regimes, are, not, are now spread throughout the world like ticking time bombs set to go off without warning. We want to reduce the level of terror, certainly not escalate it. There's one easy way to do that, and therefore it's never discussed namely stop participating in it, that would automatically reduce the level of terror enormously. Terry? Okay. Right, can I just Jim. clarify um, the one bullet line? <laughs> Is the White House from this podium advocating the assassination of Saddam Hussein by his own people, by his military? The question was about potential costs in different scenarios for cost, and I just cited the fact that Saddam Hussein uh, has survived as a result of the repression and suppression of his own people. And um, that's a reality about what life is like inside Iraq. But that, I'm not asking you a question about costs. I'm asking you if you intend to advocate from that podium that some Iraqis, you know, person put a bullet in his head. Regime change is welcome in, that, in whatever form that it takes. So the answer is yes. Thank you. Regime change is welcome in whatever form it takes. Our cause is just, and it continues. Our discoveries in Afghanistan confirmed our worst fears and showed us the true scope of the task ahead. Part 12, Terrorism, Law, and Democracy, September 11th, A Year in Review. This is Terrorism, Law, and Democracy, a documentary series examining the theme of terrorism and the rule of law in light of the international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th, 2001. My name is Khalid M. Safar. This is the 12th and final episode, September 11th, A Year in Review. The war on terrorism, domestically and internationally, continues to disrupt the basic principles of justice and is changing the balance between the rule of law, security, civil liberties, and human rights. The international rule of law is being split between the international cooperation of such institutions as the United Nations and its newly founded International Criminal Court and the now avowed imperial aspirations of the United States under the Bush Doctrine of American Internationalism. Here in Canada, 
on the 20th anniversary of the constitutional consecration of our basic civil and human rights in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, our approach to criminal law and our response to international obligations against terrorism are threatening the principles of fundamental justice for both citizens and non-citizens. In the aftermath of 9-11, the Canadian government elaborated a national anti-terrorism strategy that included expanded powers for law enforcement and intelligent agencies, an expanded national security commitment here and abroad, the introduction of such measures as preventative arrest and secret evidence that challenged the tenets of common law practice and civil and legal rights, and the inclusion of international objectives within our national legislation. The centerpiece of the anti-terrorism strategy is Bill C-36. In its basic structure, it reflects the problematic preventative philosophy adopted by the international community and particularly the new anti-terrorism legislation introduced by Occidental governments. The war on terrorism, however, is not a product of 9-11 alone, but was announced seven months earlier by President George Bush in his first State of the Union address on February 27, 2001. He announced a new American-led world order, that of American internationalism. America has a window of opportunity to extend and secure our present peace by promoting a distinctly American internationalism. We will work with our allies and friends to be a force for good and a champion of freedom. We'll work for free markets, free trade, and freedom from oppression. Nations making progress toward freedom will find America is their friend. We'll promote our values. We'll promote the peace. And we need a strong military to keep the peace. But our military was shaped to confront the challenges of the past. So I've asked the Secretary of Defense to review America's armed forces and prepare to transform them to meet emerging threats. My budget makes a down payment on the research and development that will be required. Yet in our broader transformation effort, we must put strategy first, then spending. Our defense vision will drive our defense budget, not the other way around. Our nation also needs a clear strategy to confront the threats of the 21st century, threats that are more widespread and less certain. They range from terrorists to threatened with bombs to tyrants and rogue nations intent upon developing weapons of mass destruction. To protect our own people, our allies and friends, we must develop and we must deploy effective missile defenses. And as we transform our military, we can discard Cold War relics and reduce our own nuclear forces to reflect today's needs. A strong America is the world's best hope for peace and freedom. Yet the cause of freedom rests on more than our ability to defend ourselves and our allies. Freedom is exported every day as we ship goods and products that improve the lives of millions of people. Free trade brings greater political and personal freedom. Each of the previous five presidents has had the ability to negotiate far-reaching trade agreements. Tonight I ask you to give me the strong hand of Presidential Trade Promotion Authority and to do so quickly. As we meet tonight, many citizens are struggling with the high cost of energy. We have a serious energy problem 
that demands a national energy policy. The war on terrorism invokes the language of good and evil, not only in the United States, but in our own parliament. This language of good and evil in the doctrine of George Bush's American internationalism is first of all a very long task with potentially no end in sight, justifying the remittance of civil liberties and the principles of justice ad infinitum. In his State of the Union address on January 27, 2002, President George Bush outlined the three main goals of his security doctrine. Homeland security, international security in the form of a war on terrorism, the prevention of terrorism, and the elimination of threats by weapons of mass destruction. The third goal was the security and expansion of American economic superiority and primacy. The equation of security and economic security in international discourse, in international legislation, and in national legislation, including Canada's, elevates economic crimes and the economic security of the private and public sector to the level of national security. Our first priority must always be the security of our nation, and that will be reflected in the budget I send to Congress. My budget supports three great goals for America. We will win this war, we'll protect our homeland, and we'll revive our economy. Once we have funded our national security and our homeland security, the final great priority of my budget is economic security for the American people. To achieve these great national objectives, to win the war, protect the homeland, and revitalize our economy, our budget will run a deficit that will be small and short-term so long as Congress restrains spending and acts in a fiscally responsible manner. We have clear priorities, and we must act at home with the same purpose and resolve we have shown overseas. We'll prevail in the war, and we will defeat this recession. The economic priority is everywhere reflected in international and national actions against terrorism. Canada's own definitions of terrorist activities and groups and of secrets and threats to national security and interests include the economic security of both public and private infrastructures. The economic imperatives of free trade and global capital is an essential consideration in the war against terrorism. Very few people have actually sat down to chew over the bill. All they've done is digested summaries of the bill from various groups. But if you read the actual bill, it's clear as a bell that a lot of this bill has nothing to do with terrorism. For instance, they, they've amended the Official Secrets Act to, to describe... Uh, an act that's prejudicial to the safety or interests of the state to include if a person, and I'm quoting here, adversely affects the stability of the Canadian economy, the financial system, or any financial market in Canada without reasonable economic or financial justification, end quote. So if a person calls for a boycott, boycott of a publicly traded company or a stock market on ethical, environmental, or 
other reasons that it's not reasonably economic or financial, that is an act of terrorism. This is how far this bill goes. We started this series by exploring the theme of terrorism and the events of 9-11. Noam Chomsky distinguished state terrorism, low-intensity warfare, and the concept of terrorism as it involves political alignment, where, for example, a terrorist for one might be a liberator for another. What is terrorism? Been assuming we understand it, but what is it? Well, there happen to be some easy answers to this. There is an official definition. You can find it in the U.S. Code or in U.S. Army manuals. Um, brief statement of it taken from a U.S. Army manual is and fair enough, is that terror is the calculated use of violence or the threat of violence to attain political or religious ideological goals through intimidation, coercion, or instilling fear. That's terrorism. That's a fair enough definition. I think it's reasonable to accept that. The problem is it can't be accepted, because if you accept that, all the wrong consequences follow. Now, there is a major effort right now at the UN to try to develop a comprehensive treaty on terrorism. When Kofi Annan got the Nobel Prize, you'll notice he was reported as saying we should stop wasting time on this and really get down to it. But there's a problem. If you use the official definition of terrorism in the comprehensive treaty, you're going to get completely the wrong results. So that can't be done. In fact, it's even worse than that. If you take a look at the definition of low-intensity warfare, which is official U.S. policy, you find that it's a very close paraphrase of what I just read. In fact, low-intensity conflict is just another name for terrorism. That's why uh, all countries, as far as I know, call whatever horrendous acts they're carrying out counterterrorism. We happen to call it counterinsurgency or low-intensity conflict. So that's a serious problem. You can't use the actual definitions. You've got to carefully find a definition that doesn't have all the wrong consequences. There are some other problems. Uh, some of them came up in December 1987 at the peak of the first war on terrorism. That's when furor over the plague was peaking. And uh, the United Nations General Assembly passed a very strong resolution against terrorism, condemning the plague of, in the strongest terms, calling on every state to fight against it in every possible way. It uh, passed unanimously. One country, Honduras, abstained. Two votes against the usual two, United States and Israel. Why should the United States and Israel vote against a major resolution condemning terrorism in the strongest terms, in fact, pretty much the terms that the Reagan administration was using. Well, there's a reason. There was one paragraph in that long resolution which said that nothing in this resolution infringes on the rights of people struggling against racist and colonialist regimes or foreign military occupation to continue their resistance with the assistance of others, other states, states outside, and their just cause. Well, the United States and Israel can't accept that. The main reason that they couldn't at the time was because of South Africa. South Africa was officially called an ally. Now, there was a terrorist force in South Africa. It was called the African National Congress. They were a terrorist force, officially. South Africa, on contrast, was an ally. And uh, we certainly couldn't support actions by a terrorist group uh, struggling against a racist uh, regime. That would be impossible. And of course, there's another one, uh, namely the Israeli-occupied territories, and now going into its 35th year, supported primarily by the United States, been blocking a diplomatic settlement for 30 years now, still is. And you can't have that. There was another one at the time. Israel was occupying southern Lebanon and uh, was being combated by what the U.S. calls a terrorist force, a Hezbollah, which in fact succeeded in driving Israel out of Lebanon. And you can't have a, allow uh, anyone to struggle against a uh, military occupation when it's one that we support. So therefore, the U.S. and Israel had to vote against the major U.N. resolution on terrorism. And I mentioned before that a U.S. vote against is essentially a veto which is only half the story, it also vetoes it from history. So none of this was ever reported. 
and none of it appears in the annals of terrorism. You look at the scholarly work on terrorism and so on, nothing that I've just mentioned appears. The reason is it's got the wrong people holding the guns. You have to carefully hone the definitions and the scholarship and so on so that you come out with the right conclusions. Otherwise, it's not respectable scholarship and honorable journalism. These are some of the problems that are hampering the effort to develop a comprehensive treaty against terrorism. generally recognized in the security establishment that the attacks of September 11th presage a new threat environment. I spoke with Martin Redner, director of the Center for Security and Defense Studies based in Carleton University in Ottawa. I spoke with Professor Redner about development issues and security issues post-September 11th in the Middle East and internationally. What are the the main development issues post-September 11th? Well, much of my work in the development field concentrates on the countries of Southeast Asia and the countries of the Middle East. And uh, the work I do in development relates to national development and its implications for regional development through international trade, international finance, the movement of people, movement of goods, and movements of ideas. And one of the tragedies of the post-September 11th uh, period is, of course, the requirements of security tend to militate against the easy flow of people, goods, and ideas. And this is true uh, around the world. It's uh, true, of course, on our own borders uh, here in Canada, but it's also true uh, in many disparate parts of the world where governments have uh, become increasingly sensitive and much more firmly controlling uh, movements of people in particular, but also goods, I dare say, also ideas. In terms of this this uh, barrier to the movement of either people, ideas, or goods, what is the international context now uh, for trying to improve the security issues? I would be thinking either of the United Nations Re- uh, Resolution 1373. But for you, what are the contexts of solutions that the international community is going to is trying to put into place to help secure that movement? Well, there's a great difficulty, and the great difficulty of the new forms of threat coming out of terrorism. And incidentally, terrorism is seen in the security communities, and intelligence communities, as having two dimensions. One is uh, the global militant uh, threat, and the other is the criminal element of threat. And some terrorist groups, in fact, align themselves with criminal terrorist groups, uh, but they're two distinct threats. And the problem here, of course, is both uh, militant terrorists and militant criminals tend to be embedded in society. They don't wear uniforms. Uh, they don't acknowledge uh, a formal command structure. They are cellular, they are networked, but mostly they are embedded in society. The difficulty, of course, then is identifying people. And one doesn't want to identify people by racial profiling. One must identify people or goods Uh, or even ideas by their intrinsic character. Now, let's say, for example, interceptions of communications. We know that terrorist groups communicate their plans and intentions, and sometimes they communicate them over telephone or even over Internet. They're usually encrypted. Uh, There's a technology of encrypted called steganography, where one could distort, if you will, single bytes of code in, let's say, a large photograph which you are transmitting through the internet as an attachment and a person receiving it will see it mostly as a photograph with perhaps minute distortions in the picture and those distortions contain embedded communications messages uh, which terrorists will use to communicate their intentions their plans uh, their own discourse uh, as terrorist organizations the difficulty is of course that there's tens of millions of email messages and attachments being sent every hour. And the intelligence community has not only to intercept these, 
but you have to identify which one contains the hidden messages, the steganography and the encrypted code. Then you have to try to break the codes using extremely powerful computers. And then you might even have to translate from whatever language into the language of the country which is doing the intercepting and protecting its security. And you must do this in real time because tomorrow may be too late. So you could see the kinds of challenges just on communications that the new threat environment poses uh, for the security and intelligence community at a time of massive flows of information and communications across borders, and in fact, globally. This, this new threat environment in which, uh, as you point out, militant terrorists uh, can become confused or, or uh, network with militant criminals. Um, have, has post-September 11th, are we going to be redefining how we understand terrorism, not just the technological means available to them, but the very motivations and, and uh, as, uh, global uh, impact that the new terrorism environment could create for us? Oh, yes, and and that is taking place. And let me give you elements of an example. Uh, Just recently, uh, the uh, border controls in Oman, in the Middle East, identified a person coming through carrying a Canadian passport, which was a valid passport, having a valid visa from Pakistan, but who traveled from Singapore, where that person is alleged to have planned and indeed plotted terrorist attacks on the Philippines, and on Malaysia, and on Indonesia, coming out of Afghanistan. And he, in fact, was Canadian, and was detained by Oman, returned to Canada, and in Canada he apparently agreed to be interrogated by the United States. So you could see the global dimensions, events taking place in Singapore or the Philippines, planned in Afghanistan, leading to arrests in Oman. Uh, this is uh, global responses to global terrorism. Uh, beyond the work that's already been done and the discussions about integrations of law enforcement, investigations, and in interdiction, uh, how do you see the next, the next year developing in, from the perspective of law enforcement and international cooperation? These arrests that have to be done uh, in different places for crimes planned in, in other parts of the world to affect other parts of the world, w- where do you see the uh, planning sector in terms of international security uh, going with its agenda to try and prevent this new th- threat environment? Well, you will raise uh, uh, probably the greatest single challenge to the security and law enforcement community. And that's the difference between intelligence on the one hand and security and law enforcement on the other hand and security. The law enforcement agencies around the world have always cooperated closely. And that's part of uh, an international understanding that criminality is a threat to economy, the public safety, and the well-being of virtually everyone. Uh, The difficulty is, of course, that law enforcement has its own requirements. You must gather evidence in certain ways. It must be presented in ways which accord with law and can be presented in open court and challenged by a defendant, and we have an entire legal process for that. Uh, And in international exchanges of information for law enforcement, Steps are taken very carefully to ensure that the evidence is untainted. In intelligence, we have a totally different ethos, if you will. The point of intelligence is quite literally to steal secrets. And in this case, to steal the secrets of terrorist groups who are planning attacks. Uh, Now, much of that evidence is gained through, all of it almost, is gained through informers, and the rest of it is gained on the whole from interceptions of their communications, all of which is legal. You can never disclose your source, because if you think of it for a moment, disclosure of source is a warning to the adversary, the opposite, of course, of law enforcement thinking. Therefore, the intelligence services can never disclose sources. They will never disclose disclose method. And therefore, intelligence cannot be brought into open court. Does that kind of explain then maybe the the firm conviction immediately after the terrorist attacks of September 11th that Al-Qaeda was the source and culprit behind those crimes, but it took almost a year really until September to crack the leadership and make the arrests and get the admissions internationally from some of the planners. Is that that difference seen in in, in the evidence presented publicly? That we Oh, yes. Well, let's put it this way. We know that the intelligence community had significant intelligence on al-Qaeda and its intentions, but there were two problems. How can you use the information? And secondly, how can you use it in a way which 
can be made public and even justiciable. Now, for example, using it for the intelligence community to share its intelligence, let's say for CIA in the United States, to share intelligence with FBI was illegal under United States law. And the CIA observed the law, just like in Canada. Uh, if our own communication security establishment intercepts communications uh, of a certain sort, it cannot, by law, use it for domestic purposes of, of law enforcement. Up until Bill C-36 was enacted last fall, the Anti-Terrorism Act, that would have been illegal. So we ourselves have created barriers against the use of intelligence information because it's of a certain sort in law enforcement processes, which are of another sort. And on the whole, both intelligence and law enforcement people that feel that that boundary is important. So that, of course, was one reason why, after September the 11th, while we knew about al-Qaeda, the information could not be used, for example, by Immigration and Naturalization Service. Secondly, after even if one knows certain things, one doesn't say so. For example, there was a terrible slip in the United States Congress where a congressman mentioned prior to September the 11th, that uh, the United States government was able to intercept the communications of Osama bin Laden, who was using a cell phone to communicate to his mother. Needless to say, when that slip occurred in the floor of the United States Congress, Mr. bin Laden no longer used a cell phone. So the very conveyance of information about interceptions and methods uh, and sources and targets uh, can alert terrorist groups who will take remedial action straight away. So therefore, it's not surprising that at September the 11th, it has been very, very slow and very, very reluctant, uh, these authorities have, to reveal information. For example, just last week, United, uh, the United Kingdom presented its dossier on Iraq. The main group opposing publication of that dossier were the British intelligence services, for fear that anything in that dossier, if reviewed carefully by Iraqi counterintelligence, might disclose to the Iraqis who are the people in Iraq who today are communicating that type of information on Iraqi intentions, Iraqi capabilities, to the United Kingdom. Given your understanding of uh, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, where uh, al-Qaeda has been very active in its recruitment and organization, I'm wondering if uh, your, your knowledge of, of government agencies and, and, and civil society in those countries, if they have a different perspective than what we might hear in North America about security issues and intelligence issues, or are we, as September 11th forced the international community to kind of get on the same page? Well, it's rather interesting. If you look at Southeast Asia and the Middle East, in fact, in each case, the governments there have been much firmer on security and intelligence uh, than governments in, in the West. And, for example, even the more liberal and democratic governments in a country like, let's say, Malaysia, which is, as you know, uh, it, it's a Muslim state, dominant uh, Muslim population, uh, an elected government, uh, which is regarded as a government which rules by law, they clamp down very, very early on al-Qaeda-type ideas coming into their country, on uh, networks have been vigorously suppressed by their intelligence services. And they have been active, uh, for example, uh, in this international coalition against al-Qaeda. Now, there are reports that an al-Qaeda meeting prior to uh, the attack on the Trade Center took place in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, it was monitored, in fact, by the Malaysians. The information was given to the United States. The difficulty was the U.S. CIA, by law, couldn't use that information. And we know that now because it's been disclosed at the congressional hearings. The U.S. got the information from the Malaysians, brought it back to the FBI, and the FBI said, we cannot use this information to have surveillance on people coming from Kuala Lumpur to plan the attack. And they knew that because it violated American law. And that's one of the difficulties of intelligence. We call them intelligence failures, but in fact you have to think of it as intelligence conforming to law where law could not anticipate such threats. Now, on the question of Southeast Asia, allow me just one more comment. It's interesting that the Southeast Asian countries and the Middle East countries have often now been the places of interrogation. If Al-Qaeda people were caught in Morocco, they're not remitted for interrogation to the United States. They're remitted to interrogation to Egypt, to Malaysia, and to other countries where, to be blunt, the, the standards of interrogation are a good deal tougher and the standards of interrogation, which we observe here in the United, in Canada, or indeed in the United States. 
You're talking specifically about the possibility of threatening the accused or the interrogatee's family as well as torture? That's Bruce. Well, I, I don't want to say what I don't know, but okay. uh, m- many of the countries in the regions we're talking about uh, have encountered terrorism before, as you know, and they've been vigorous in the suppression of terrorism. And the way one suppresses terrorism is firstly to penetrate terrorist networks, cells, and groups, uh, and secondly, to compel people uh, to give the information which they have at their disposal. We in Canada uh, have legislation, incidentally, which allows for the first time uh, in many decades uh, compulsory uh, compulsory giving of evidence before before a court, of course, but it's still compulsory, and we will use preventive detention. You could imagine other governments and other political systems which are somewhat less respectful of civil rights uh, might be even harsher in compelling evidence and in in detaining people. Uh, We don't have an intelligence culture in Canada. Intelligence community for many years wasn't very transparent. Uh, It is now considerably more transparent because I think the intelligence and security community are aware that without public knowledge, without public confidence, uh, they cannot, in fact, uh, address the current agenda because the current agenda is in some some ways, as mentioned, it's embedded in society. It's embedded in certain elements of community, uh, and you have to have both law, and you also have to have transparency and accountability, but also public confidence. And by the way, there's there's no uniform response. Uh, it's always co- uh, contextualized and nuanced by situation, by country, uh, by the requirements of law, uh, by the requirements of public policy. That was Martin Rudner, director for the Center for Security and Defense Studies based at Carleton University in Ottawa. I interviewed him about development issues and the security establishment and the evolving new threat environment post 9-11. I had an opportunity to also ask him about the pertinence of the International Criminal Court to the prosecution of this new threat environment. While he says not a lot of work has been done on this matter, and that it is not a political priority internationally, he has a firm conviction that terrorism is best dealt with in a criminal context. I think the, the commanding hypothesis almost everywhere is to treat terrorism as a, when, when caught as a criminal act and therefore subject to criminal legislation. And I think that's healthy because while the campaign against terrorism may have to require intelligence sources, I think the treatment of terrorism has to comply with with our standards of law and public policy. I wouldn't want uh, I wouldn't want it otherwise, and I don't think even the intelligence community doesn't want it otherwise. thought that the events of September 11, 2001 would have been ideally dealt in the developing jurisdiction and competence of an international criminal court. The International Criminal Court, which came into effect on July 1st, 2002, was established to judge the most serious crimes which affect the entire international community. These crimes are the crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and eventually, when defined, crimes of aggression. The creation of the International Court by the Rome Convention of 1998 is the result of many years of study, discussion, and international consultation. This project became more pressing after recent events in Rwanda, the former Yugoslavia, and of course, in New York City and Washington on September 11, 2001. The will to create an international criminal court is not new. Neither is the fight against terrorism. In 1937, the League of Nations adopted a convention against terrorism and a protocol on the creation of an international criminal court. Unfortunately, neither the convention nor the protocol 
ever came into effect. In 1948, the General Assembly of the United Nations recognized that in all periods of history, genocide has inflicted great losses on humanity, and that in order to liberate mankind, international cooperation was required. The General Assembly then adopted the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. In the same resolution, the General Assembly invited the International Law Commission to study the desirability and possibility of establishing an international judicial organ for the trials of persons charged with genocide. Following the Commission's conclusions, the General Assembly established a committee to prepare proposals relating to the establishment of such a court. In 1951, the committee prepared a draft statute. However, the General Assembly decided to postpone considerations of this statute pending the adoption of a definition of aggression. In December 1993, the conflict in former Yugoslavia erupted. In an effort to bring an end to human suffering, the United Nations Security Council established an ad hoc international criminal court for the former Yugoslavia. Its mandate to hold individuals accountable for those atrocities and by so doing to deter similar crimes in the future. At its 82nd session, the General Assembly decided to convene the United Nations Diplomatic Conference of Plenipotentiaries for the establishment of an international court. The international community finally met in Rome in June 1998 to finalize this draft statute, which, when ratified, would establish the International Criminal Court. The Rome Statute was adopted on June 18, 1998, and gave effect on July 1, 2002, to the International Criminal Court, now ratified by 77 countries. The jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court will be exercised over persons who commit serious crimes of international concern after July 1, 2002. Intended to complement national criminal jurisdictions, the Criminal Court defines and covers crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and eventually when defined, crimes of aggression. Defined in the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court, the crime of genocide means acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. These acts include killing members of a group, intentionally inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and imposing measures intended to prevent births and growth within the groups. Rwanda would be an example. The Rome Statute identifies ten categories of crimes against humanity, directed against civilian populations who have no knowledge of the attack. These crimes are murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation and forcible transfers, imprisonment or severe deprivation of physical liberty in violation of fundamental rules of international law, torture, rape, sexual slavery, persecutions of identifiable groups or collectivities on political, racial, national, ethnic, cultural, religious, or gender lines, enforced disappearance of persons, the crime of apartheid, and other inhuman acts of similar character, which cause great suffering, serious injury, to body, mental, or physical health. The definition of war crimes hinges on grave breaches of the 1949 Geneva Conventions, which protect, among others, the injured or ill from the military, prisoners of war, and civilian populations. Acts against persons or property include willfully killing, torture or inhuman treatment, including biological experiments, willfully causing great suffering or serious injury to body or health, extensive destruction and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity, compelling a prisoner of war or other protected person to serve in forces of a hostile per power, depriving a prisoner of war or other protected persons of the rights of fair and regular trial, unlawful deportation or transfer or unlawful confinement and the taking of hostages, other serious violations of laws which constitute crimes against humanity and war crimes, include intentionally directing attacks against civilian objects, objects which are not military objectives, 
intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attack will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects or widespread long-term severe damage to natural environments. Bill Graham, Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, talks about the importance of the International Criminal Court in the context of terrorism, the rule of law, and democracy, a priority which has been lost in the developing war on terrorism. L'adoption du statut de la Cour pénale internationale pour le confer- par la Conférence de Rome en 1998 était une réponse bien tardive aux sortes de millions de civils qui ont perdu la vie ou la santé sans compter de leurs biens, leurs familles et leurs amis dans des con- conflits souvent trop, euh, trop souvent dans le siècle dernier et même dans le jour. Le Canada est connu comme chef de file mondial dans ses efforts déployés pour créer la Cour permanente. En septembre 2000, il a lancé la campagne en faveur de la Cour permanente afin de fournir les outils et les connaissances nécessaires pour aider les pays à ratifier le statut de la Cour. Dans le cadre de cette campagne, le Canada a participé au financement d'ateliers et de conférences organisées en Afrique, en Amérique latine, dans les Caraïbes, dans le Pacifique Sud, en Asie, et au Moyen-Orient, et on a envoyé des experts. En faisant la promotion de la Cour, le Canada contribue à la primauté du droit dans le monde. La création de la Cour garantira que les auteurs des crimes les plus graves perpétrés par l'homme, les génocides, les crimes de guerre et les crimes contre l'humanité, seront tenus responsables de leurs actes. La Cour assure également que les responsables de, de ces actes sont traités conformément aux garanties judiciaires fondamentales, ce qui renforcera la primauté des droits et le respect des droits de la personne. Comme chacun ici le sait, l'absence dans certains domaines d'un réel mécanisme de, qui permet d'assurer le respect des, des normes auxquelles nous prétendons, prétendons nous souscrire est une des faiblesses du système du, juridique international. Cette cour nous montrera comment nous pouvons remédier à cette défiance du système de gouvernance mondiale. Mon message aujourd'hui, donc, a trois dimensions. Premièrement, les attentats du 11 septembre ont démontré la nécessité d'une réponse concertée face au terrorisme. Deuxièmement, le Canada joue un rôle sur le plan militaire et politique, mais aussi en contribuant à la création d'un cadre juridique pour lutter efficacement contre les terroristes à l'échelle internationale. Troisièmement, la campagne contre le terrorisme peut et doit être menée dans le respect de la primauté de droit de, et des droits de la personne. Pour nous, les Canadiens, ces éléments, cependant, ne sont pas neufs. En effet, nos activités antiterroristes s'ajoutent au soutien que nous apportons depuis longtemps à la création d'un système de normes internationales exécutoires Régie par des règles dans notre Cour n'est qu'un exemple. Et comme dans le cas de la Cour permanente, le Canada est prêt à aider les États qui en ont sans euh, volonté, mais qui, qui n'ont pas de moyens à combattre le terrorisme et à mettre fin à l'impunité. And taking to heart the lessons we learn here in accommodating the need for us to live in a secure and stable society free from terror, while guaranteeing, guaranteeing those human rights which make our democracy so important for all of us. I thank you all very much. That was Bill Graham, Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, discussing the importance of the International Criminal Court and its pertinence to the war on terrorism. The United States is the principal opponent of the ICC. For good reason, beyond its resistance to any international oversight of its actions. The definitions of war crimes prohibit the use of America's preferred military strategies of overwhelming force and preferred armaments, while holding U.S. personnel and officials responsible for civilian deaths or so-called collateral damage. The entire point of the defense planning guidance that underpins the U.S. military reformation and reorientation, as well as the national security strategy recently presented by President Bush, would be criminal if the ICC became an effective institution. 
In order to undermine the ICC and intent on elaborating its right to act unilaterally, the Bush administration last spring reneged its ratification of the 1969 Vienna Convention, which regulates international treaties. Normally, nations, if they do not ratify a treaty or convention, must not act against the goals and objectives developed by the international community. With this amendment, the U.S. announced it would not ratify the Rome Convention and intended to seek immunity for its military personnel. Under threat that the U.S. would pull out of peacekeeping missions, the United Nations Security Council granted this immunity for a year, and renewably so, in July. At the same time, the American administration has approached individual member states to the ICC to sign individual immunity deals. At least seven countries have done so, and the European Union, in October, will decide if it will let members do the same, essentially undermining the court and the rule of international law. international community has largely been unsuccessful to define and provide a broad anti-terrorism definition and convention through the United Nations because of their inability to achieve a consensus on a common definition of terrorism. The most recent meeting of the General Assembly's Ad Hoc Committee on Terrorism concluded on February 1st, 2002 without an agreement on the definition for proposed comprehensive convention. Since 1970, 12 United Nations agreements on specific elements and crimes of terrorism have been adopted, and these 12 conventions now are part of our obligations and duties under the Criminal Code. Parliament has amended the Criminal Code of Canada and created new offences to implement a series of 12 United Nations agreements adopted since 1970, which deal with hijacking of aircraft, hostage-taking, the prevention of crimes against internationally protected persons, maritime navigation, fixed platforms, and the protection of nuclear material. The adoption of the Anti-Terrorism Act came in light of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1373, adopted on September 28, 2001. Its clauses required all member states to prevent and suppress the financing of terrorist acts, to criminalize the willful provision or collection of funds to be used to carry out terrorist acts, to freeze the funds and other financial assets or economic resources used to commit or to facilitate the commission of terrorist acts, to prohibit the making available of funds or financial or other related services for those purposes, to suppress the recruitment of terrorist groups and the supply of weapons to terrorists, to deny safe haven to those who finance, plan, support, or commit terrorist acts. Resolution 1373 concluded that collective action was essential to identify, to eliminate, and to prevent networks that support international terrorism. There has been a consensus that has emerged in the Security Council and among many nations that after September 11th, the nature of terrorism requires a different approach to disrupt and disable the terrorist networks before it can carry out its designs. As the former Minister of Justice Anne McClellan said during parliamentary debates on C-36, if we don't stop the terrorists getting on the plane, it's too late. It is the very nature of this preventative interdiction that is the problem both of the Canadian response to terrorism and the international and American responses to terrorism. To strike before they do. Bill C-36 responded to the requirements of Resolution 1373, implemented Canada's outstanding obligations arising from recent UN anti-terror conventions, 
Bill Seri to C-36, also respected international agreements adding to the criminal code new crimes related to those UN con conventions, as well as to bombing and terrorist financing. Bill C-36 extends extraterritorial jurisdiction to permit the persecution in Canada of acts or omissions committed outside of Canada. For the first time in Canadian legislation, the bill defines terrorist activity and terrorist group in Section 83 of the Criminal Code. A terrorist group refers to any entity that has as one of its purposes or activities facilitating or carrying out any terrorist activity or is a listed entity certified as such by the governor and council. Terrorist offenses refers to specific new offenses created under the criminal code and also include indi any indictable offense under federal law committed for the benefit of, at the direction of, or in association with a terrorist group, or an indictable offense where the act or omission constitute terrorist activity. One doesn't need to be a listed entity or be considered an official member of an official terrorist group to find oneself interdicted by Section 83. The definition of terrorist activity in Section 83.01 of the Criminal Code of Canada decides who can be charged as a terrorist and against whom new investigative and preventative powers can be exercised. The key is that there must be a motive, a political, religious, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause. It's very clear that the government has taken the opportunity to put a closet in this bill that makes it easier to push forward without any dissent its globalization agenda over economic treaties. If you read this bill, a lot of what is there is meant to stifle APEC protests, Quebec City protests, anti-logging protests, native rights protests, all to pave the way for complete and unmitigated non-resistance to globalization. Because a lot of these provisions are strictly economic crimes that one sees in a dictatorship. And so there is absolutely no basis these provisions with respect to not being able to, for instance, call for a boycott on anything but reasonable economic and financial justification, what does that have to do with violent terrorist attacks? Absolutely nothing. So people should be seeing through this bill. Now, uh, RCMP Commissioner Zarkardelli was asked and reported to have replied the other day, could this anti-terrorism bill have been used against the protesters in Quebec City? And he said, although he, did, he didn't think he would, yes, it could have been used against the protesters. Well, there's your answer right there. How do peaceful protesters at an anti-globalization protest come under as terrorists? In the second episode of this documentary series, we examine the historical pattern of Canada's management of security threats. It was suggested that Bill C-36, the new Anti-Terrorism Act, and the other policies and legislation proposed by the government in its anti-terrorism strategy continues our national tradition of government overreaction to these threats and the violation of civil rights of target ethnic or political communities under the emergency doctrine. That is, the federal government's constitutional powers to manage the nation and pass such laws as needed to maintain the peace order, and good government of Canada. Bill C-36 was called an act to amend the criminal code, the Official Secrets Act, the Canadian Evidence Act, the Proceeds of Crime Money Laundering Act, and other acts, and to enact measures respecting the registration of charities in order to combat terrorism. It became law on December 24, 2001. The government's anti-terrorism plan aims to interdict terrorist acts and to investigate, identify, and dismantle terrorist infrastructures and groups with the objectives of securing public safety and of preventing damage to economic activity by expanding the powers of law enforcement and national security agencies. 
This plan reflects the international tendency associate security, safety, and economic activity. Bill C-36 is at the heart of our national strategy. It defines terrorist activities and groups. It provides far-reaching investigative tools to identify and prosecute not only such entities, but those who knowingly support or facilitate, financially or otherwise, such activities. It creates new sentences and provisions for terrorist offenses committed in or out of Canada. It provides for preventative arrest, for the compulsory giving of evidence, for secret hearings where the detainees and the accused never hear or see the evidence, which may never be unlocked from its files of secrecy. It compels individuals with relevant information to provide that information before a judge. We presented the views of Richard Mosley, an assistant deputy minister in charge of criminal law policy and community justice at the Department of Justice Canada. He argued that the new Anti-Terrorism Act was a product of healthy democratic processes and a valid exercise of preventative power, and that much of the substance of the law and amendments proposed to many of Canada's present legislations were in fact planned and on the books for the last 10 years. We have heard in this documentary series various perspectives in support of Bill C-36, the new Anti-Terrorism Act, and many views in opposition of it. The question we really have to ask is, how repressive do we need to become in order to defeat it? Bearing in mind, of course, that you can easily overdo that sort of thing. The real problem with this bill is that it's permanent unless people force Parliament review to be effective. In the meantime, we should carefully try from various people of affected groups to try and establish the data because I do not trust parliamentary, uh, parliamentary review processes to actually assemble the data that will show one way or the other whether this legislation is as dangerous to civil liberties as I think it is. In, in my view, in this particular case, in an extraordinarily awful event, uh, this was a complete overreaction from the Canadian Parliament and um, it's something that will stain our criminal justice system for a long time unless there's political effort to get rid of it. It's very clear that the government has taken the opportunity to put a closet in this bill that makes it easier to push forward without any dissent its globalization agenda over economic treaties. If you read this bill, a lot of what is there is meant to stifle APEC protests, Quebec City protests, anti-logging protests, native rights protests, all to pave the way for complete and unmitigated non-resistance to globalization. Because a lot of these provisions are strictly economic crimes that one sees in a dictatorship. And so there is absolutely no basis for these provisions with respect to not being able to, for instance, call for a boycott on anything but reasonable economic and financial justification. What does that have to do with violent terrorist attacks? Absolutely nothing. So people should be seeing through this bill. Now, uh, RCMP Commissioner Zarkardelli was asked and reported to have replied the other day, could this anti-terrorism bill have been used against the protesters in Quebec City? And he said, although he, d he didn't think he would, Yes, it could have been used against the protesters. Well, there's your answer right there. How do peaceful protesters at an anti-globalization protest come under as terrorists? There are two questions that concern us very much. The first one is the CIA. Who the hell runs that organization? The second one is, who runs this country? Dot, dot, did it, dot, dot, dot. What is terrorism? Been assuming we understand it, but what is it? This has been part 12, September 11th, a year in review. 
our 12th and final episode from the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy, which has explored the theme of terrorism and the rule of law through international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th, as well as the ongoing international campaign against terror. I would like to thank those who have participated, interviewed, and researched for this documentary series, including Ted Strauss for his assistance with engineering, Gretchen King, and Ornella Savarelli for her assistance with researching the International Criminal Court. Much of this series was based on the proceedings of the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy, organized March 25th and 26th, 2002 in Montreal by the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice. The conference asked the question, how is Canada changing following September 11th? And provided for reflection on the need to maintain a balance between protection of public security and fundamental rights, especially if September 11th turned out to be a true breaking point in the relationship that most democratic societies maintain between imperatives of public security and the ideals of freedom promoted by the theory of fundamental human rights. I would like to thank the CIAJ for making these audio transcripts available for rebroadcast. You can visit their website at www.ciaj-icaj.ca. I was Khalid M. Safar, and this has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, the People's Power Station. Wishing you peace and keep fighting for a brighter day.